This is episode number 118 with John Joseph McGowan. From dealing cocaine and living on the streets of New York to a punk rocker changing lives. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. I'm pumped that you guys are hanging out with me today, and I think you're really going to enjoy today's episode. I'm actually in Colorado camping with my family this weekend, and Normally, we go to this campground outside Silverton called South Mineral Campground, and I have been going there basically every year since I was a baby, except for when I started bike racing, so it's been kind of hard to make it down there, especially now that I live in Canada, but we planned to go down and go camping, and then the campground ended up being closed from a lot of snow, so... Global warming does exist. It's crazy how much snow there is and how much snow Colorado has been getting even through June, but we're going anyway and we're just gonna camp in a different campground. I also just finished the two-day Spockwis stage race. Two days is basically the shortest stage race ever, but it's really awesome to be able to do that event. Squamish has the best mountain biking in the world and the vibe is cool. And I love just being able to ride there and race there for multiple days in a row. Big thanks to those of you who have purchased my Plant Power Tribe cookbook. It's a digital cookbook and it has all super healthy and easy to make plant-based recipes that will help you perform better in life and on the bike. And speaking of plant-based and cycling, I'm excited to introduce to you today's podcast guest. We have a few things in common, but a lot of things we don't have in common. Like, it's a miracle that John Joseph McGowan isn't dead or in prison. He's escaped AR-15 gunshots from cocaine dealers. He's managed to just miss being arrested while being AWOL. Has instigated many fights himself while he was a crackhead with a violent streak. He's been homeless. I mean, it's hard to imagine that a human could have endured so much adversity in his life. And it's even more inspiring that he's come out the other side, helping to change people's lives for the better. JJ's early days began with being sexually and physically abused in foster homes as a young child. He ended up homeless and living in the streets of New York City in burnt out buildings, selling drugs and committing robberies and acts of violence in the 1970s. And after being incarcerated as a juvenile, he was given the option to spend four years in the Navy instead of go to prison. But his drug and alcohol addiction did not end, nor did his fighting habits. He was even smuggling drugs from Jamaica on his naval ship. And after getting into a fight on his ship, he was arrested, but a tooth infection sent him to the hospital. And during this time, he was able to escape and was AWOL for 15 years. And while AWOL, he dove into the punk rock scene in the early 80s after meeting HR from the Bad Brains and eventually started a few of his own bands, Blood Clot and the legendary Cro-Mags, whom he still tours with today. And after a two-year stint with crack and cocaine and eventually finding his rock bottom, the tides finally began to turn. With a deep interest in philosophy and previous life experiences with Hare Krishnas, he found himself at the temple and committed to getting clean. Not only did he beat his drug addiction and dealings, but he found bhakti yogi, a vegan lifestyle and spirituality that has given him a sense of purpose to be of service to others. When I sit here just telling you guys about John Joseph, I just can't even believe the things that I'm telling you let alone that these actually happened to him and how amazing he is. 
These days, you'll find John Joseph towing the line of Ironman triathlons all over the world. He's completed more than 10 Ironman triathlons. He has authored three books, The Evolution of Cro-Magnon, which is his life story. The book Meat is for Pussies, which is a how-to guide for tough guys looking to get into a plant-based diet. And more recently, the book, The PMA Effect, PMA, Positive Mental Attitude. And I love that book. Last year, he worked on a program called 30 to Life that provides housing and healing techniques to inmates who have been incarcerated and are now paroled after doing very long prison sentences. So basically, the guy is doing all kinds of great things to give back and help people, especially help people that might have been in his situation and help them turn it around with diet and lifestyle habits to start from the inside out with what's on their plate and what they're putting in their mind and help them lead better lives. John Joseph has a lot of great stories that you're going to hear that have outlined his life. Just a heads up, if you're offended by explicit language or if you have little ones in the car or nearby, you might want to skip this episode or save it to a later date. I didn't want to censor John Joseph at all because he is so authentic. He is definitely himself and he likes to drop a lot of F-bombs. So I just wanted to give you guys a heads up if that's something that bothers you. But his stories are truly incredible. If you enjoyed this podcast, it was hard to fit all of it in in such a short period of time. And in fact, this one we went over by about 30 minutes compared to what we do for other episodes. But if you want to hear more detail about his life story, he's also appeared on Joe Rogan. And I think that episode is probably like three hours long. He's been on Rich Roll's podcast six times. And recently he was also on the Plant Proof podcast. So there's lots and lots and lots you can get from John Joseph. And I'm really excited to share with you his story today. I want to give a big shout out and thank you to our podcast sponsor, Kuat Racks. And Kuat is a part of my daily life. And while I do strive to ride to the trail as much as possible, I do go on a lot of road trips with my mountain bikes. And I also drive to trailhead sometimes when I don't feel like riding the road or whenever I want to get in a shorter ride. Kuat racks are really easy to use. And for the longest time, I didn't even have a bike rack. I drove a busted out Nissan Sentra with, I took the back seat out. It was a two door and I would jam my bike into the back seat of the car. And whenever I got new cars, I was just so used to not having a bike rack that I just never had a bike rack. And I was also kind of intimidated by them. Like, what if I messed up and my bike fell off? Because I'd always hear these crazy stories of people's bikes falling off their car. So with Kuat, I actually feel like my bike is really secure, although I have to admit while I'm driving down the highway, I'm always looking in the rear view mirror to make sure my bike is still on the rack and I've never had a problem. They're also super easy to install. I'm somebody that gets kind of grumpy about things that are time consuming out of the box. And I was really surprised with how easy it was to get this hitch mounted rack onto my car, get it assembled. In fact, the box even acts as part of your assembly tool. So it's pretty cool. Check out kuatracks.com, K-U-A-T racks.com. Awesome. So let's get into this crazy story of John Joseph from the Cro-Mags. Welcome to the show, buddy. Wow, thank you. It's an honor and privilege to be on the 24-hour world champion uh, cyclists podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, a fan of the pain. Yes, getting into that pain cave deep. (laughs) Yeah, I was thinking the other day, like, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts and I've been reading your book and... 
it's a lot about self-awareness, like all the things we talk about with mindset. But in order to get to the point where you can look yourself in the mirror and be honest with yourself, you have to have gone to a dark place. And you personally have been through a lot of insane things in your life, which I definitely want to cover all of it. But as endurance athletes, we sign up for that. Like we choose to put ourselves in that situation. And I think that that's why a lot of endurance athletes are just really able to look themselves in the mirror and just say, yeah, like I learned so much about myself in these dark moments. Yeah. I mean, definitely. I, I think the last time I did Kona, I, uh, 2017, there was like this bad stomach flu. It was a dysentery kind of thing from the, some sewage washed into the swim course. Oh. And I was throwing up like crazy and like, I don't know if you know that race, but when you come out of T2, you head up uh, Alihi, like it's like straight uphill. And I started throwing up and then I, I saw somebody wrote in the street, remember you signed up for this. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. After everything you've been through, an Ironman is probably a walk in the park. Definitely. My first race, uh, I hadn't even done a sprint triathlon, and uh, it was Ironman uh, New York City. And, you know, you get your typical fucking tri-nerd, <laughs> for lack of a better word, douchebags that, like, you know. I mean, there's a class in this whole fitness thing that try to encourage people. And then there's like a fucking class that gets their yayas out, kind of putting doubts in people's head and making themselves feel better by that. And I happened to run into one of the latter types at uh, at the bike shop when I was kind of getting fitted up at Sid's Bikes in New York, who kind of sponsored me a little bit for that race and stuff. And this guy, you know, started like, oh, you didn't even do a sprint. You know, this is crazy. You're going to try to do that. And, uh, you know, and um, maybe you should have signed up for, you know, an Olympic first or a half, like, to try. And my coach, who's African-American and, and, and from the hood, was basically like, you don't even know what this motherfucker's been through, dude. You need to stifle yourself because an Ironman is a walk in the park for this fucking dude. And, you know, you can't let people sow the seeds of doubt in your psyche, you know, and and I, it's just something I never have because it was like, you know, I had a lot of people doubting that I would even survive when I was locked up or in, in institutions and everything else and telling me I'm never going to be more than a fucking wino on uh, the Bowery and, and you know, in, in institutions and locked up or dead. And I just refused to accept that as my truth and actually set out to prove them wrong. So, yeah, I love that funny story. The 24 hour world championships, I had done like team 24 hour races, but it was actually my first ever solo 24 hour race. <laughs> wow. Like you got to go big. You just got to like, don't make excuses. Just show up and see what happens. Exactly. You know, that's uh. And I forget the name of the, she's a world-class swimmer. She did the Fairlawn, uh, the uh, channel there with the great white shark. She was on Rich Roll's podcast, just blanking on a name. But she said the greatest gains in life are found right on the other side of what you fear the most, you know, so. I love that. And I've just met so many amazing people in the fitness community, in particular the Ironman community and, um. I enjoy, uh, you know, if you're going to continue to do something, you have to enjoy the people that 
you're kind of associating with to do those things. And, uh, you know, everybody has a story, man. You meet people, disabled veterans or people who overcame cancer, you know, or the loss of a loved one or just challenging themselves. They lost weight. They, they got on a fitness kick. And, you know, I, I've, my books have, you know, fortunately, I, like I said, I didn't come up with any of the information. I just, I just kind of like, take it from the experts and pay it forward. That's what I do. And then to get letters like, hey, you know, I just finished my first Ironman and I just did a marathon. I lost 100 pounds. Thanks for the inspiration, you guys and guys like, you know, Rich Roll and, you know, just all these other, you know, male and female amazing athletes, Heather Jackson. And I mean, it's just, you know, what people are just out there doing is incredible. And I think, like, we have to challenge the human spirit to the utmost, you know, and that, that's my thing, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I actually started my podcast after reading Rich Roll's book, and I had never actually listened to a podcast before. And after I read his book, I thought, well, I'll check out this dude's podcast. And it was so awesome. And then I thought, I know a lot of really inspiring people that can help inspire others, too. So maybe I'll give it a try. And it's been, like, over two years. And it's been one of the most rewarding things I've ever done. So yeah, I always think of him and I don't know him personally, but I just, I'm always so thankful that he has that putting all that amazing information and stories out there. Yeah. I mean, it's funny cause I had heard his podcast. I was friends with Brendan Brazier, another uh, Canadian up there. And, uh, I, I was writing Rich, but, you know, he, he never wrote me back. And then we both spoke at this seed conference in New York, which is like plant-based wellness and I was like, yo, motherfucker, how come you keep dissing me, man? I, I, I said, he's like, man, you know, he's like, it, they just got lost in the shuffle, man, because I get a fucking hundred messages a day. And he, you know, we've been best friends ever since, man. The guy, you know, everyone asks me, you know, what's he like in real life? And I'm like, you know, as genuine as the person you hear on the podcast, that's Rich Roll. He'll bend over backwards to help anybody. He's just one of the most stand-up guys I've I've met. I've had the fortune of meeting, and his and his wife Srimati is uh, Julie. You know, but like they say, behind anything any man, great man does, there's always a great woman, and uh, and and she was the one who got him initially to go plant-based and the meditation and the whole shit that really healed him from the alcoholism and, and bad diet and everything else that he was dealing with. So, you know, she gets just as much credit because she was kind of the instrument to his path, you know? Totally. Well, I want to get into your life story because I was telling somebody about it the other day and they, they couldn't believe that this all happened to one person. <laughs> Yeah, I get that. And uh, actually, when my memoir uh, first came out, The Evolution of a Cro-Magnon, at that time, a lot of like fake memoirs were coming out, people bragging they'd been in prison and they did this and did that. And one in particular was A Million Little Pieces and he made it to the Oprah's book club and it was all bullshit. And then here, you know, then there was other memoirs that got debunked. And then here comes my book. And the first big press I got was the Village Voice. And the guy was like, come on, dude, get the fuck out of here. Like, there's no way you did all this and survived. Uh, you know, and I was like, look, man, in all honesty, there was a lot of stuff I couldn't put in that book because I'm not trying to implicate myself in certain matters. <laughs> but 
I give you any numbers or you can go to Bupers, uh, Freedom of Information Act with the military or contact my family, anything you want. I mean, everything in the book is 100 percent true. And uh, and he did contacted my mother. And, you know, the whole family story is, is, you know, Ben still is actually reading my book now and he's bugging the fuck out. And I'm because I'm uh, developing it for a film. I mean, I didn't. I didn't choose. It was forced upon me, especially from an early age on. Until I left that foster home in 1975, everything prior to that was just forced upon me. You know, I was a kid and and shit was done to me and, and shit was done to my mother and my brothers. And it was difficult. But I think, uh, you know, I just got asked you know, would you do anything differently? And I was like, absolutely not, because like I'm where I'm at in life because of the challenges that, that I had to go through early on. And um, hitting the streets at, you know, 76, I, I went to, you know, the, the foster home I was in got closed down because they found out about the abuse that was going on to the all the kids in there. And, uh, and then uh, they... Uh, split me and my brothers up. And I mean, that's the reason we stayed because prior to going to that home, we were separated into other foster homes. And we wanted to be with our big brother, E, who I talk about in the book. And the foster home he was in, the guy was... This shows you some of the crazy shit that goes on to these kids. He was only taking in foster children, female kids from Vietnam because the war was going on and, and he was molesting the kids, molesting the girls. And so that house got shut down and then my brother got put in with us. And I mean, these people were sick. We were never allowed to go in the refrigerator. We we had to like steal food. We had to steal the dog's food. We, you know, I ate dog biscuits and had to steal everything in order to survive. They, they didn't buy us any clothes. They were getting a ton of money for us and just making us climb in Salvation Army uh, poor boxes for clothes and eat. You know, I mean, we ate Oreo spit sandwiches because she didn't like the filling on, on the Oreos. And that's what we ate every practically every single day with tea. And, you know, I realize e- even now I'm, I'm turning 57 in a couple months and I'm like, it just hit. It just dawned on me like last year. I'm like, these people never took one single photo of us. We were there for over six years, and they never took one single photo of us. We were like the ghost children that that just didn't exist, you know. And uh, it was rough because the whole town made fun of us and for being orphan, you know, orphans, and you know. But uh, it definitely gave me a thick skin for for later on in life. And when I got out of there, I was like, nobody's putting their fucking hands on me uh, again because there was a lot of all types of abuse being done to me and my brothers. So I just definitely, when I got to the streets of New York, I started, you know, I was in St. John's Home for Boys and started uh, developing a very violent streak and, and getting into trouble, selling drugs at 14 years old in 1976. And, um, you know, my mother always commented that I know my brothers, I was the most like my father in terms of anger and, and, and what have you. And uh, I mean, he tried to murder her. So that's she fell into depression. I didn't find out till I was 40 
years of age that actually she left him and he broke in and, and raped her. And, and that's how I was conceived. And even my younger brother and, uh, you know, my mother chose not to terminate the pregnancy. And that thank God, because I'm here, you know, but I never understood her story until I started writing this book. You know, I was thinking how to put the climax on it, because that story is five parts of story is uh, inciting incident, progressive complications, crisis, climax, and then uh, resolution. So I was like, how the fuck do you end, you know, after all the shit I've been through going to lock up and 15 years on the run from the government, you know, touring all over the world and, and, and all the rest, how do you end? I had to, you know, turn the story back inward to what I was dealing with. There's a reason why I kept relapsing into drugs, 88 to 90. I went through a two-year uh, crack pill and alcohol addiction to the point where I had drug dealers looking to kill me and, and for robbing them, and um, I was out of my mind, you know. But uh, it was because a lot of those scars of my childhood just, it was like thick, like wounds that never healed properly, and, and it just took for some shit to happen. And if that's the test of true character, when the pressure was on, I crumbled. As much as I walked my characterization, ta you know, the tattoos, the tough guy image, whatever the fuck, just from fighting in the streets of Alphabet City and, and New York and fighting in jail for two years and everything else. But really, there was this scared, hurt person that I was not confronting. And that's what I needed to do. And that's what that addiction at the end of it, that, that's the lesson I learned and after I got sober in, in 1990, you know, I started getting back into my training and cycling and martial arts and, and fitness. And, and that's what kept me going to this day, remaining sober. And uh, Ironman is a big part of that for me. How did you decide to do an Ironman? Well, you know, my uncle, who just passed away, uh, Rocco, we used to always... Uh, watch TV. Uh, he was really, he was from Italy, you know, so we would watch the Giro d'Italia together and the Paris-Roubaix and like, he was a cyclist, a good cyclist too. Like I went cycling with him and, you know, he's one of those Italian climber dudes. And, um, you know, one time I it was in the early eighties, the, the, the Ironman Hawaii came on where I wore the sports and I was just like, holy fucking shit. Like, you know, it got me emotional. I was like, yo, look what these people are going through. And then they always tell the stories of like what each individual athlete's journey was that brought them to the shore of uh, Kona, you know. And uh, I just was like, hey, I'm going to do that race one day, man. You know, I, I want to do that. That's like, pfft. and I was a pretty damn good cyclist and a great, I wouldn't say great, but I was good at running. And uh pretty decent swimmer. I needed to get more into the technique and everything. And, uh, you know, I started putting the pieces together and then my, you know, Orion Mims, who's like, you know, done nine and 10 hour Ironmans was like, yo, this race is coming and, and, and to New York city and I can get us in, you know, I was like, what? He's like, come on, man, pull the fucking trigger. Let's do it. You know? And I had always heard about him, Orion from the bike shop, they're like, yo, there's this brother, he's a fucking bad motherfucker, he boxes, and like, 
you know, all of this stuff. And and then I saw him one time in this uh, vegan restaurant called Caravan of Dreams, and he was with these other dudes that I, I kind of seen around. And I was like, then finally I came into the bike shop, and my boy Larry, who worked there, was like, yo, that's Orion. I was like, man, I saw you, you know, and we just been good friends ever since. But we trained together, and he trained me, and then... We signed up, uh, he got me in that, and then he trained me, and we got a big uh, spread in Triathlete Magazine, you know, and he was training me and stuff like that, and um, I just, you know, that's that's what it is. I, I always talk about, you know, you have to set challenges for yourself, and that, that's what it does. It's like, you know, I don't sit there. If I finish a book, I just start another one. If, I, if I'm if i writing a film, it's like I work through, I get it to the end. If the, I finish a race, I'm looking for the next one. And, you know, I read Stephen Pressfield's book, uh, The War of Art, which is a great read because those same principles, fighting resistance and all this stuff that takes place for you as an artist is there in all aspects of life. And he really looked up. His mentor was this like really famous writer. And they used to all go to the hills outside of Hollywood and, you know, live in trailers and stuff and write books and just get away from everybody. And like he finished his first book and then, you know, he was all proud and he gave it to his mentor. And the first thing the mentor said before he even read it was, great, now go start the next one. And that's really what it, you know, that's that's what it's about. And and uh, I was on uh, on Vice you know, followed me for Iron Man Boulder. And I was like, you know, you're either, you're either, that was back in, um, what was it, 2015. And even then I said, hey, you know, it's either going to be one and done. Okay, feather in my cap, I did that. Or you're going to get the Iron Man bug. And and I did. I just loved it so much, you know, because it's, it's a mindset. And it's like, yo, I got to show up. I got it keeps you fit. It keeps you healthy. It keeps you around positive people. And, you know, my new book, um, The PMA Effect, that's what I said. It comes down to being around people who stay positive and, and stay goal-oriented and, and, and are always trying to move forward in a positive way as opposed to hanging out with the complainers and the people that make excuses and the world sucks and woe is me and let's go have a fucking drink and talk about our misery. And like, I just stay far the fuck away from those people because I've been there before. I don't ever want to go back, you know? Yeah. So. so, so speaking of going back, so yeah, you were in the foster homes then you went to the boys home and then you ended up going to, to jail, right? Yeah, well, I racked up cases because uh, I was in St. John's and my first case was I sold uh, to an undercover cop, uh, actually two undercover cops. They, they, This junkie in Rockaway had, his name was Jimbo Sterling, he passed away, but uh, he had a hot dog stand right when you got off the train on 98th Street to go to Playland, Rockaway Beach, you know, Ramones, Rockaway Beach, so I'm like, you know, hanging out and that whole shit and seeing the Ramones hanging out on the boardwalk. It was just like the place to be in the 70s. And he sold drugs out of this hot dog stand. So if you came and you knew the deal, he would put the the weed in in, in a hot dog bun or, uh, or a hamburger bun. And so these, these like two biker kind of people, a male and a female, just built up 
a rapport and started buying more weed and more weed and more weed. And then like came down to the time where they wanted, I, I forget it was weight, like a quarter pound or whatever the hell it was. And I was going to deliver it to them. And, you know, Jimbo Sterling was there with his girl and, and he kind of like turned sideways a little bit and he was in handcuffs and I just took off and they caught me beat the shit out of me in the precinct, handcuffed me to the radiator, and then put me back to St. John's waiting for court. And, you know, St. John's was like, you need to stay out of trouble or you're going to go up to, we're going to have to send you to Spofford, you know? So I split, went onto the streets again, and then got caught breaking into a supermarket. Apparently the, the person I was with claimed that somebody told him the combination to the safe and there was all this money in there. So we breaking through the skylight and we're like hacksawing the bars because they had security bars on the skylight. We were going to drop down in there by rope. This guy was like an airborne ranger dude that went AWOL. Joey Keen, who just passed away too from like heart attack or whatever. And um, yeah, so all of a sudden the floodlights come on and the building was surrounded and they were like, get the fuck down from there now. And that was my second arrest. And then I begged them not to put me in Spofford and like, you know, so they let me stay and then I took off. And then that was, uh, you know, like I took LSD with this guy, Bobby Keeler, and, and uh, he was terribly abused as a child. His mother's boyfriend, when he was like four or five got woken up by Bobby as a kid and, and, and he dragged him to the bathtub and doused him in lighter fluid and set him on fire. So the guy, the kid, the dude was burnt from the neck down, but he was like just, you know, 5'10", 220 pounds of fucking insanity. And, and just, he would snap and just, just like everybody was terrified of him. The staff, people in the neighborhood, he was the only dude in St. John's that was dating a girl, a local Rockaway girl, because everybody was terrified of this guy. And uh, my first acid trip was with him. And he pulled a hunting knife and tried to kill me. And I had to escape. And, you know, one thing led to another. And, and I ended up uh, splitting St. John's and, and went on to the streets for good. And, you know, involved in the heroin trade as as a heroin mule coming to Alphabet City. And for these junkies, I didn't have no place to live. It was the dead of winter. It was like January 77 and it was freezing. Like I remember the first night I went onto the streets, all the winos at 116th Street used to sleep. We used to stay under the uh, marquee there. There was an abandoned movie theater. And then we slept in the Holland House, which was an abandoned hotel on 115. But then, like, the cops were coming down on everybody. And, I, like, I didn't, like, St. John's is on 110th. When I split, I was six blocks away. I was, and, and then stayed at uh, this girl and her brother's house, Connie Crowley, for a minute. But, like, they were like, yo, you can't keep staying here. And uh, I, I slept under the boardwalk and this like snowstorm hit and I just was like, I had like $20 to my name and I just uh, went and met this junkie dude. And then, and, and, you know, they I started running drugs for them. They had a, they had a heroin business coming down to Alphabet City, buying hair, bundles of heroin and cutting it and then 
you know, they would double their money and, and have heroin to get high. And they were like the drug dealers in, in Rockaway. And then uh, they got popped. One of them got popped. And then I just kept doing, you know, fucked up shit. And my first, I guess, I would say girlfriend, but, uh, you know, I didn't know she was fucking with all these other dudes at the time. But, um, you know, she died of a heroin overdose. And, and, and then uh, I just, you know, spun out after that, got involved in the Angel Dust trade and in Forest Park. And then... Um, I was uh, selling dust for this manufacturer of the stuff, actually. And, and uh, the dome in Forest Park, Queens was like, it was like the Walmart of the drug world. Like everybody from all over the five boroughs would come there. And the dust that this guy made was the most powerful. So they would pay me like a dollar a bag and I would sell two, 300 bags a day of this stuff. You know, and, and they, uh, Angel Dust started in the West Coast. It was started by bikers. So they would take all of those chemicals and dip a cigarette into the chemicals or a joint. And then it was called Sherms. So this dude was the first person to take those same chemicals and put it on top of spearmint leaves and then slow dry that. And then the dust was in the spearmint leaves and you would roll a joint out of this stuff or put it in a pipe. And it was the most insane stuff ever. So yeah, I, uh, we ended up selling to this uh, this guy's sister, and, and and she jumped out of the second floor window of her of her parents' house, and uh, you know he he wanted revenge and came in the park, and we were the only ones selling dust, and we didn't know what what the hell happened to her, and uh, it, he was just like you know this dude in his van goes, hey, who got the zambola? And that's what people called his dust was Sambola. And uh, I was like, right here. And as I went to step down the stairs to where the cars pulled in, the door sh flew open and he just started popping off shots with a 22. And, you know, I got hit in the back of the leg. And the craziness was that the guy I was selling for, I didn't even know it, but uh, he was a child predator. And uh, I went back to his house. Cause I couldn't go to the hospital and he's like, Oh, that's not, you know, it's barely under the skin and I could pull it out. And he had this little like 17 year old disco protege that he always 16 or whatever. And, you know, I just thought it was a kind of a weird, like, why is, why is he with this kid? He's a grown ass man, 30 years old on steroids. He, he looked like John Travolta on, on steroids. And uh, we went back to his house and he gave us a drink and he slipped us a, a, a fucking, he put, you know, like very strong barbiturates. And I passed out and woke up, you know, and he was carrying me into the bedroom to try to rape me. And I fucking just fought him off. He dropped me. And then I woke up to like this kid screaming and uh, I walked to the back and he was raping him. And uh, I hit the guy with a bat, robbed his house. And at that point, it was like I really, everything was falling apart and it was so crazy. And I was addicted to pills and dust. And I, I don't know, I just didn't know where the fuck I was going to go or what I was going to do. And I went back to Forest Park with this huge bag of dust. And I just started smoking and the undercovers got me. And uh, they had been watching the park anyway before the shooting happened. And 
had pictures of me selling. So they were like, give up the manufacturer and you'll go to a drug program as opposed to you're looking at four to six years, you know. And uh, I just knew, and that was the code of the streets. Like, like you know, Beretta said, you don't do the crime if you can't do the time. I know you don't never snitch. They were going to put me six months in Samaritan house and then, and then like a group home situation. And I just, uh, I didn't snitch and I took the time. I went to Spofford in the South Bronx, which was, uh, actually it's Hunts Point. Yeah, South Bronx, but a very, very dangerous place. And, uh, the cops, the Irish cops from Kew Gardens told me, yeah, the last, uh, white boy that we brought up here got, got stabbed. And um, that was not something I wanted to hear, but, you know, I was the only white boy in the whole facility. And that was the year the 5% are Muslims that from the Nation of Islam, which were a radical wing of Farrakhan's people, Elijah Muhammad, that looked at white people as devils and they took over the prison system. So that's how I, that's who I had to deal with, 21 and under, plus Roots had, was on TV. So I was like, yeah, Kunta Kinte, Toby B. Good nigga and all that, right, motherfucker? Yeah. So that's, needless to say, that the first week I was there, I think I, I, I fought just about every day. And then, you know, I spent three months there and then they shipped me upstate for 18 and I got like another two months tacked onto my sentence for beating someone uh, pretty badly. And and then, yeah, I just got out and I had nowhere to go. And um, my mother had to sign me out because they can't just release me to the streets. And uh, things didn't work out with her. I caught another case, went right back to the streets selling drugs, sold to an undercover, caught me with uh, heroin. And then they were like, all right, you're either going to go back to jail or my mother was dating a Navy recruiter, and, and he said, listen, I could get this whole shit wiped away. You sign up and go into the military on the buddy program with my brother E, which he used E as a bargaining chip because my brother has a genius level IQ and qualified for the nuclear engineer program, and they wanted him. So I, he was the carrot that the recruiter who dated my mother was dangling. And he's like, you know, so he was able to get my record hid. And then I went into the Navy and that was just the whole, I mean, it was the beginning of the end of that whole kind of institutional journey for me because I was smuggling in the Navy and, and uh, just buck wild. They didn't do uh, piss tests back then in 1980. So I was fucking taking acid, lewds, pills. I was the only punk rock sailor on the whole naval base in Norfolk and just going fucking crazy, selling drugs, doing drugs, fighting. And, um, you know, then uh, I went to Jamaica and met these Rastafarians. I smuggled back some pounds of weed on my ship, but they taught me about ITAL and all this shit, took me up into the hills and met the Bad Brains a few months later, two or three months later, and got some more education into it. And then I was like, I'm done with this institutional shit, and I split uh, the military. That was, and then went on to the streets, got into the music, and became plant-based. And that's uh, been going ever since. Yeah, the thing that I thought was really crazy about the Navy part of your story is 
how you got arrested and then how you just sort of, they forgot to say that you were arrested and then you just were able to escape and then you're AWOL for 15 years. Like, it's well, amazing. it didn't really, it didn't really happen exactly like that because the thing was the case that I caught, once again, I sold to undercovers at this bar called the King's Head Inn in the parking lot. And I think it was pills or weed I sold them and I got busted, but that was a civilian case. Mm. So I was restricted to the ship for that. And then my ship got underway. And then we went to, they were going all the way down to Argentina, Brazil, you know, shellback past the equator, but it made all the stops in the Caribbean as well. So we hit Florida, we hit St. Thomas, we hit uh, we did, uh, we did shakedown cruise in Cuba, uh, and, and, you know, Guantanamo Bay and then, and then poor, you know, we were going and then hit Puerto Rico. But the thing was I had gotten my wisdom teeth, like I think two of them pulled and they got badly infected. So the thing was I was restricted to the ship and then they, they docked my pay. So I was working like a fucking dog not getting paid, restricted to the ship and having to watch all these other people go on Liberty and have fun. And I'm there fucking scrubbing decks. And there was this one redneck that always kept fucking with me on board my ship, calling him, ah, you fucking punk rock faggot and this, that, the other thing. And I'm like, I just kept telling him, listen, man, <laughs> you need to back the fuck up. Like, like I knew if I got in, my, 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 my thing was if I got in trouble, the lawyer that they gave me, I was trying to call for entrapment that the cops entrapped me with the sale. So it wasn't I wasn't convicted of that as of yet. But the thing was, my deal that I signed to get in was that if I get in trouble in the Navy, that whatever I was looking at before, that's what I'm looking at again. So the deal was off the table. So that's... Uh, I ended up, you know, I was just having a real bad day and I had, I started getting this fever and, and I'm working out in the hot sun and the Caribbean sun on the deck. And, you know, this dude just walked by and uh, like kicked my paint can and said some shit. And I was like, I just, you know, I was one of those people that like I would take shit and then all of a sudden I would snap. And that's what I did. I snapped and uh, he was a boat to me too. So he was in the paint locker and I just walked in, locked the door and proceeded to beat him with a paint can until he defecated on himself and was unconscious. I went back to my rack and, act, you know, just laid there waiting for the shit to hit the fan. No pun intended, but uh, <laughs> fucking 45 minutes later, the fucking curtain on my rack pulls open and they're like, feet on the floor, like fucking master at arms, which is the ship's police, took me into custody and, you know, they were figuring out like, what the fuck, you know, what do we do now? And that's, they locked me in the birthing compartment, but uh, that's when I got this infection and they had to. So they left Puerto Rico and they're like, we can't keep them on the ship. The sick bay can't deal with this. So they had to medevac me by chopper off of the ship back to Puerto Rico. And the thing was, this was before computers. 
So they forgot to put in my orders like, yo, this guy's supposed to be handcuffed to the fucking hospital bed. And uh, they kept me there. And then uh, they were like, well, we haven't heard from your command. It's really weird. Like, I just was like lost in this gray area. We didn't hear from your command, so we have to send you back to Norfolk, to uh, Nimitz Hall, to the transient personnel unit. Why, you're going to have to wait for your ship to come back. And that's what they did. And then it was like the timing on everything was so bizarre because it was like you got paid. on. They, they paid me, too. I was getting paid in Puerto Rico. I was fucking running around in Puerto Rico, got tattooed. I was hanging out with these dudes on a PT boat, fucking taking acid, when, like going into the jungle, just doing whatever the fuck I wanted. Like it was just, you know, wild stuff. And then they sent me back to Norfolk and, and then I got tipped off. Hey, your ship's coming in tomorrow. But the thing was, you got paid on the 15th and the 30th. So the next day was like, it was the payday. And... I should have split that night, but I needed the money, you know, and it was only $199. I was, I got busted down to E1. It was $199 every two weeks. That's what I got. And I needed that money to split. And it was like the dispersing clerk cut me the fucking check. I cashed it and then grabbed the bag and got on the bus that went the civilian bus went through the base down Hampton Boulevard into the base, went all the way to the whole base, came around and went out. And I wanted to get the fuck out of Nimitz Hall because at that point my ship had docked. And as I'm rolling out, stopped at the light, the master at arms, the two master at arms are standing right there. Right across the street was Nimitz Hall. They were going to get me. And I just sunk down in the seat a little bit and you know, like I said, I said the other day, I was like, you know, if if they had just looked to the left, we wouldn't be doing this podcast right now because my the trajectory of my life would have completely went in a different way. And then I went, uh, I hung out in Norfolk a few days and then I went up to D.C. and stayed with Henry Rollins and Ian Mackay lived together. They let me crash at their place for like a week. And then we're like, all right, you're eating all our fucking food. It's time to go. And <laughs> so I went to the 930 Club and I hitchhiked, you know, with this band, The Undead, drove me back to New York City. They had a gig. And, and then I stepped out of the van and ran into HR from the Bad Brains. And that's how the whole, like I said, the institutional life at that point. And my feeling was like, you guys failed me as institutions, you know, like, you know, you're supposed to take care of. You know, the social worker never even came to check up on us and, and what the fuck was going on. And, and um, I just felt that the system failed me. And I just was like, you know, like there's a scene in my flick where I'm like, the night that I split, even with all the chaos from St. John's and I was under the boardwalk, like I had $20 to my name. I didn't even know where the fuck I was going to go. But this whole kind of peaceful thing took over me because I was like, all right, now I'm calling the shots for the first time in my life. You know, now what I what I want to do, I'm going to do. And it was a wild ride for nearly those two years of, of just being out there. New York was a crazy time. 77 in New York City was buck wild. There's a great documentary called 77, The Coolest Year in Hell. 
You had the blackout son of Sam, the summer of punk, just violence, drugs. The city was broke. It was fucking, it was insane, you know, and, and to be a kid out there was pretty, pretty fucking wild. So, yeah, like yeah. all these things have happened that I would be personally terrified. Like I'm somebody who's kind of goody two shoes, never done drugs, never been in a fight, like all these things sound really scary to me. Did you feel really scared when these things were happening or was it just like, no, this no. is survival. This is what I do. No, man. You know, yeah, there was situations where I was scared shitless, but you know, there was this one thing that happened and like, we used to sell fake acid at the garden. And then, um, we would always go to this bar McCann's afterwards and get food and drink and count our money and whatever the fuck. And, the dude that I was doing that shit with was the one who got my girl that I was with at the time. She was trying to fight heroin addiction. You know, being in the, in the punk rock scene, she was she was like a little older than me, like 18. And, you know, she she relapsed because of him, really. And then he he split when she passed away. When she died, he fucking he just took off. So I went back and I had no money and there was a there was concert at Madison Square Garden. So I remembered exactly how he made the fake acid. It was fake blotter. He would take blotter paper, Vicks Formula 44 and a cigarette, tear the paper off the cigarette filter and make perfect circles and then wrap it up in aluminum foil and the whole shit. So I sold like $200, $300 worth of fucking fake acid and then Usually I would go into the concert after that. I would get real, you know, get tickets and real acid and drugs and go bug the fuck out. This night I didn't do that. I went to McCann's and uh, I ordered food and went into the bathroom. And it was one of these like really shitty fucking bars with terrible food and like every fucking low life that hung around at fucking... Madison Square Garden and that whole area was really, really seedy, as as was Times Square, the deuce. And I went into the bathroom urinal and there was somebody behind me in the toilet, you know, taking a shit. And I hear like grunting and like whatever. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, it's that good old McCann's food. And the dude didn't respond. And then the door pushes open and this this fucking crazy Puerto Rican dude comes up behind me with a fucking straight razor. And like, I'm like, I just, you know, kind of tuck my junk away and turn around. I was like, yo, you got it, man. Like, I thought he was there to rob me. You know, I was like getting ready to pull out the cash. And he, he puts his finger up to his lip and he's like, and he goes, kicks open the fucking bathroom stall door where this guy was. It was a black dude with an afro sitting on the ball, taking a shit, grabs him by the afro and just starts slicing his fucking juggler vein and neck and kills the guy right in front of me. Oh my God. And I'm like, at that point, I'm fucking pissing in my pants, literally in fear. And like, this dude was bigger than me, crazier than me. And I'm the only witness that just seen this motherfucker kill this guy. And then he comes back up to me and he's got the straight razor. And it was like, it was just this moment where like we both looked at me. You know, I looked at him and he was looking at me. I just saw like empty, nothing there. Like, 
And I thought, that was it. I'm going to be fucking killed right now. And he put his finger back up to his lip. In other words, and fucking walked out. And the craziest shit that I wrote was like, not even one word was exchanged between me, him, or the dude on the toilet. I don't know what that dude did to him that caused him to get murdered, but whatever it was, that was the way New York was back then. So, you know, there were situations where, yeah, somebody of a higher power was in that bathroom with me because that dude could have taken my life, you know. But then there's other situations where, you know, people were testing you on the street. And I like, you know, like, I, like after my girl died, I, I, the girlfriend I had, I kind of spun out into violence. And then I hooked up with these two maniacs from Greenpoint, ended up murdering a bunch of people and themselves getting murdered. But they were crazy. And we used to go rob all the houses in uh, Bell Harbor. And they were always like, you know, Polish maniacs, insane. And they would like, go hit that fucking guy with a two by four in the face. And I would do it like, you know, and then I just kind of developed this kind of like uh, rapport on the street, like, you know, not to fuck with this person. But, uh, you know, there was those situations, too. And, uh, you know. Anyone who says I wasn't scared in a situation, like I have friends who were in the special forces and been in combat and everything else, the fear is there. You just have to work through that fear. And that's the way it was in any situation that, you know, I, I got in a, a fight with this gang outside of 171 when, when I went AWOL. And that's how I hooked up with the Bad Brains, I think, because like, I fought like five of these dudes with a chain and they were trying to fucking kill me and uh, I got stabbed in the shoulder, but I got away and then they put a KOS on me, which is kill on sight. And then like, I just couldn't go down to Alphabet City for like, I think it was like three or four months. And then I just went down and faced them and they like surrounded me getting ready to do whatever. And uh, notorious gang. In, in the Lower East Side. And then at that point, Doc and Daryl from the Bad Brains ran out of the studio and were like, yo, 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 like, chill. And were able to fucking calm these dudes down because, like, they thought, hey, if this dude goes to the cops and snitches, apparently, like, the dude that stabbed me had priors and was on parole. Like, if I would have snitched on him, he would have done serious time. But I'm AWOL. I ain't going to the cops. And I ain't going to no hospitals. Like, you know, that's just, that's how it was. You, you didn't rat people out. Nowadays, you know, any little thing, you get in an altercation, some motherfucker, like, steps up and starts shit with you and physically assaults you and you've handled the situation, guess what? You're on a fucking camera somewhere and you're the one going to fucking jail. So it's a whole different thing in New York City now. That's why... I just stay to myself and people will mouth off and I'll just walk away. That's it's a different time, you know? So yeah. How definitely did, fear you, was there. How'd you find the Hare Krishna lifestyle? Like you were a monk for a couple of years, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's funny enough, like when I was in DC, 
all of the punk rockers in D.C. in 1980, the Christians would go on, uh, like we hung out in Georgetown on Wisconsin Avenue, and the Christians would be there chanting, and we would like dance by and fucking make fun of them, and like, but always respectful. I remember there was one situation, some like rednecks tried to fucking, redneck Marine dudes tried to fucking get physical, and we like jumped up, like, yo, back the fuck up. Like, you know, we took the Krishna's backs and stuff. It was, you know, you see the seed planted with that too, because then like I was hanging with the Bad Brains and they went back down to DC and I went with them and they, and they, they got me working at this place called Fields of Plenty with this dude major. And he went to the temple every day and came back with the food. And I was like, yo, I was still, you know, this was like late 80s. So I hadn't even become full on vegetarian yet. But I was like, yo, that Krishna food is dope. And I was stealing the food every day that he would bring back. It was pretty funny. And then after a while, he just like brought me a whole container of my he's like yeah now you can stop stealing my food i was like what are you talking about he's like dude come on i know you were fucking taking my food i didn't say nothing and then the bad brains got me would go to this health food store when we got back up to new york and the dude who managed the place was this dude Vinny signorelli he plays in the unsane now he's the drummer but he was in this band called the dots and the singer of the dots jimmy quid was the producer of the bad brains rep first single pay to come stay close to me so it was like i was living with them they're like they got me a job in a health food store and then i was already reading philosophy books and at that point i was like i stopped eating meat and all that stuff and uh this was like early 81 and i was reading gorjeev krishnamurti ram das going to meet victorious kovinskas at the integral yoga institute and seeing all these teachers speak and going to take yoga and like I started really getting into philosophy and yoga and healing myself internally at that point as best I could. And then Vinny was like, you know, we started having philosophical discussions, which turned into kind of debates. And I was like trying to defeat the philosophy. And he's like, just hit me over the head with this stuff. And I'm like, yo, where, where did you learn all this? And uh, he's like, you know, at the temple, We'll go there one time. And then he's like, Krishna's going to show you that this is the truth. You're going to get a message because that's what happens to everybody. And then, like, I brought my mom, like, two bags of organic groceries out to Queens. And as I'm in the subway, there's this Hare Krishna monk, that older monk there and with books. And I was like, yo, you know, I kind of was like, So he wouldn't give me the book. He's like, no, you have to do service. And I'm like, well, why are you selling it? You should give this information away. And he's like, no, you have to surrender. There's this thing of surrender, of doing service. I was like, well, I don't have any money. I got a jar of juice. So I gave him that, and he gave me the book. And I run back to the health food store. I was like, Vinny. And he's like, ah, I told you, motherfucker, see? And he was like this really cool punk rock dude. It wasn't like some like religious fanatic talking to me. I respected him and he was cool as fuck, you know? So then he's like, I was like, yo, I want to go to the temple. And then he took me to the temple and it was just such a magical place. We went there early in the morning. Brahma Mahorta means like 
you know, before the sunrise and it was just so peaceful. And the food, they were making pancakes and like fucking, they don't use eggs and none of that shit. They made pancakes and fruit and all this stuff. And I'm like, wow, holy shit. And just the nicest people. And, and I still was trying to debate them. And every day the monks would just be like, hammering the philosophy. I'm like, motherfucker, I will go back and write questions down. I'm going to fucking get them tomorrow. But nope. The philosophy was just, you know, it wasn't fanaticism. You were doing everything and you knew you had a deep philosophical understanding as to why. And then they got me to start, you know, just start chanting and all that. And I did and went out on tour with the Bad Brains for this Southern tour and started like blood clot this band we were the roadies but i was getting more into the eastern philosophy and the krishna stuff and it didn't gel well with them so like they had a la the west coast tour plan and when i got back they're like yo you ain't coming with us because you cited up other run-ins we don't deal with no Hari krishna business this is a we you know bad brains is rasta and all this so i kind of hit rock bottom a little bit because I've been working with them for like a year and you know I was putting my shit on the line to help these dudes you know the troubles that they had going on tour in the south nobody knew they were black and showing up at these places and you know there was beef and they were my brothers they were my family I would have fucking risked I you know would have fucking stepped in front of a fucking bullet for those dudes at that point and to get just shoved aside it kind of fucked me up and um, Vinny was like, yo, why don't you go live at the temple for a little while? So I tried Puerto Rico and then weird shit was going on. And then they had this magazine called Back to Back to Godhead. And I saw that they had a sailboat in Hawaii and uh, they needed somebody. They ran an ad that they need someone who understands uh, seamanship and, and deck skills and, and all this stuff. And I was able to do that because I got that's the skills I got from the Navy. And, and I called up the temple president, Narahari, and I was like, look, man, I've been getting into Krishna. I want to come out. He's like, come on out. Went out there and stayed for a year and then split, went to New York and then moved in the temple there for a year. And then I was like, I just had the calling like music, you know, and I started noticing really crazy shit going on in the movement. Money, stealing, and children getting molested, and, and just crazy shit. I did this investigation and just found out all of this crazy shit they were doing. So I split and then um, went and lived in a burnt-out building. And we got the Cro-Mags back together. And uh, yeah, just went on from there. And then implemented the philosophy of what I'd learned, because despite what these fucked up people were doing in the movement, it didn't deter me from the chanting and reading Prabhupada's books, because Prabhupada was humble. Prabhupada slept on the floor. Prabhupada served everybody else. These guys were the exact opposite of that. So I never lost my faith in the process or Prabhupada, and I kept doing whatever. And, and then, you know, kind of implemented, I took that philosophy and mixed it with the street culture and the punk rock and the aggro shit against the establishment and everything else. And that's how we came with uh, the Age of Quarrel, the first Cro-Mags record. And at what point during this story did you stop doing drugs and alcohol? Uh, well, the alcohol I stopped. And the only drugs I did was weed. 
and that that was my thing. I didn't, you know, in an occasional fucking mushroom or whatever the fuck. I never did. I, I stayed clear of all the drugs. It wasn't until we went on tour in 87 and my so-called best friend and band member, Harley Flanagan, robbed all the money from the tour. And I had to come back and be get evicted on Christmas. And then I started, that's when the spinning out shit kind of, like I said, the inciting incident for that whole story was I was betrayed and I took it very personal and I took it out on him when I seen him, but then I took it out on myself because I quit the band and spun out into drugs. And that's when I got involved with cocaine first and then freebasing and then crack, straight up crack for two years and pills to come down and alcohol. And that was from, cause it was Christmas 87 was that tour. And then 88, I just quit. And then 88 to 90 is when I, I spun out, you know, with the drugs for those two years. And then how did you get clean? Cause I mean, it seems like some people make it and some people don't. So how did you do it? Well, to be honest with you, you know, they always say you have to resort to your higher power. And the thing was, I did insane shit when I was using. Because that drug makes you just be fearless. One incident happened where the first time I ever freebase, we were down in Miami. And I was with this dude, Crazy Dave. He was Cuban and his brother was Cuban. And I get down there and uh, his brother comes in. They have a party. His brother comes in with this knapsack full with fucking kilos of cocaine. And he's like, the most cocaine I've ever seen in my life. And he says, and I had snorted a little bit, whatever. But then he goes, have you ever free base? And I was like, nah, what the fuck is that? He's like smoking cocaine. I was like, what? You just put it in the pipe? He's like, no, 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 no. So they go into the kitchen and he gets a bowl and puts the Coke in there and puts the fucking free, you know, puts the baking soda, boils it and then starts putting ice cubes in there. And then these big ass rocks formed and he gives gives me the pipe. And the first hit, I was like, he's like, this is going to change your life. That first hit, I was like, what the fuck? And I remember the first thing I said was, now I know why Bruce Lee smoked cocaine. Because he, you know, that's, he did. Because I just was, you know, trying to fight people and snatching the pipe from them and all kinds of shit. And then they got annoyed by me to the point where, like, you know, because I'm like this in-shape dude that could, that didn't give a fuck. And, and they all were like, let's get the fuck out of here. And uh, they left. And... Um, Dave was like, you could sleep in my brother's room, you know, while he's gone. We like just the crumbs of what there was so much free base, just the crack, just the free base crumbs. We were up for a fucking whole nother day smoking that. And then he's like, yo, I was going through the carpet looking for shit on my hands and knees like a fiend. And he's like, yo, 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 that's it. It's done. You know take these and he gives me like value to, to come down. And he's like, go to sleep, man. 
And then it was like, I don't know, three, four o'clock, you know, that point where like the sun's just starting to come up and uh, I'm like passing out, going in and out of sleep and waking up. And uh, and I hear this car pull up, door opens right outside Eddie's window, his brother Eddie's window. And uh, I hear the bolt of AR-15s. And they unloaded both clips. They did a walk around the house. Firing. And I'm sleeping in Eddie's bed. The fucking water bed explodes. I fucking get onto the floor. All like, you know, he had that tacky shit. Glass mirror, fucking ceiling. Like just fucking firing. They walked all the way around the house. Got in the car and left. And then the cops came and. Turns out that Eddie has stolen from, you know, the Cuban mafia cocaine traffickers down there and they came to fucking kill him. And then it just, you know, I just got even crazier shit going on, you know, ended up in L.A. with this girl at the time. And we just went on a tear for like nine months out there, you know, and I just hit rock bottom man i had burned everyone we robbed the red hot chili peppers merch person that let us stay at her house she sold fucking crystal meth we robbed her i was i robbed all these dealers in new york fucking everybody was just like don't go near this dude you know and then we uh sold her car like i didn't even know the severity of what the fuck was going on behind the scenes because her mother and father and stepfather were very, very well connected. I mean, her stepfather did Ronald Reagan's inaugural ceremony in 84. He was a Hollywood producer. So they had hired a fucking team of fucking detectives and the FBI and all kinds of motherfuckers were looking for us. But we were in we were living in the underground. I didn't let her contact any of her friends to tell anybody. And it was just like, it was fucking insanity, man. And we ended up spending a lot of our family's money, bad checks. We would buy anything a dealer wanted, like stereo, TV, whatever the fuck. And he would trade us. Then they cut the credit cards off. Then we wrote thousands and thousands of dollars worth of bad checks. Then we did whatever the fuck we had to do to get drugs, uh, robbing people, whatever. And then it was like, we just had no resources left whatsoever. And we were like, she was like, let's sell the car. So we go to this dealer in Los Angeles, like a typical scumbag fucking, you know, used car salesman. And I forget. Whatever we wanted for the car, he was giving us like a third of it. So we're like, you know, he obviously knew that we were fucking drug addicts because he made us wait in the lobby and like he's looking at us and he's trying to get the car for like, I don't know, it was a couple, $3,000 or whatever the fuck he was offering us. And it was like this brand new Volkswagen Cabriolet, all white leather interior and sunroof. And like, you know, I think, I think. Those cars went for like 20 grand back then. And um, he's like, well, wait here and let me go talk to my boss. And uh, and so we had the title. And I'm like, something's up. You know, I feel something's up. She's like, 
you know, we were just at each other's throat, like typical addicts at that point. Fuck you. You think you know everything. I'm like, no, no, I know something's up. And then he comes out and he's like, well, I talked to my boss and we're going to give you what you wanted for the car and this and that. I just have to do paperwork. And, and uh, you know, he has to come and sign the check. So he's stalling us. I'm like, something's up. She's like, fuck you. You know, and then I go to the back and I stand outside the dude's door, but off to the side around, the, you know, like I'm eavesdropping on his conversation. What happened was he called the name on the title, which was the car was in her mother's name. And he's like, yeah, I'm holding him here. The police are on the way and uh, I'm stalling them, blah, 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 blah. I fucking go back out. I'm like, yo, he called your fucking parents. The cops are coming. She's like, fuck you. You're making that up. I'm like, I'm not. And I go back again and I walk into the room and I go, uh, hey, man. And there was the title on the desk. And like we both looked at it and then both went for it at the same time. But I cracked them and. He went flying. I grabbed the title. We ran out. And just as we were pulling off the fucking, you see the cops come. And then you see her mother in her fucking convertible Mercedes. And we just jetted up into the hills of Hollywood. Got away. But we didn't know, like, the whole shit, what was going on. And then she said, I used to date this guy. He owns a uh, dealership in Palm Springs. And uh, I, I was driving. Like, you know. Like, fucking didn't give a fuck. And I'm doing, like, fucking 80 miles an hour on the way to Palm Springs and get pulled over by the state trooper. And I got no ID. I'm AWOL, fucking just everything. And I'm like, yo, that's it. We're done. That's it. This is ending right here. And then you get to that point where, like, he he walks up, license and registration, and I'm just sitting there. And I'm like, then digging in my head, like, you know, do I fucking pull this guy through the window? And like, you know, you start thinking all this crazy shit because I'm like, I'm going to fucking prison, you know, all the shit's going to catch up to me now. And uh, I saw that he had like a Navy tattoo of like boats and made and I was like a shell back. So I'm like, oh, well. You know, when did you cross the equator on that fucking, uh, on that tin can boats? In other words, like, I knew he was a boat's mate. I knew he was on a destroyer because it was DD something another. And I knew he was a shellback, which meant you crossed the equator. He's like, what? You were in the Navy? I was like, hell yeah. Like, you know, we beat the shit out of them polywogs and I was boat's mate, first division, you know, blah, 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 all that fucking quartermaster, like the whole shit. And uh, he goes, oh, man, I can't give no uh, I can't give no shipmate a ticket, you know, and I had no ID, like nothing. He's like, listen, you got to keep it under 65 here. You're going to get pulled over in the next trooper. You're going to get a ticket. And I was like, I couldn't fucking believe it. Drive to Palm Springs. Guy takes the fucking title, goes in, runs the VIN number, comes back. The vehicle identification number, he's like. You two better get out of here. This just alerted to the cops. They're on the way. This car is reported stolen and that you kidnapped her and you're in a cult. And we were like jetted the fuck back to L.A. And then we sold her car for two ounces 
two plane tickets in like, I don't know, 500 bucks or something, get on the plane. And she had told her next door neighbor was the heiress to post cereal. That's these, that just tells you who the fuck these people were. Santa Monica, Pacific Coast Highway, fucking mansion. And this girl hated me from the moment she met me. Her name was Nadine Post. And fucking she told her what flight we were on and that we were headed back to New York. And it was a way because she was terrified of what, you know, we started out in a parent's mansion. They were out of town on vacation. We ended up in a fucking crack motel in Compton at the end of this whole shit, ready to prostitute her for drugs and the insanity shit that I was doing. She just broke down and was like, I don't want to die. I was like, you fucking, do you know what you just did to me? Now you think I would turn to her and go, that's it. You know, the, the romance, everything's over. You know what I, you know what my first words were? We got to sniff all the cocaine in the overhead. <laughs> <laughs> and I had an ounce up there and an ounce checked in underneath. And I just started bugging fucking snorting huge lines in the bathroom standing up sweating my heart rate was like 220 beats a minute i'm sweating i'm blasted on coke and i'm like you know reading from like the bhagavatam how everybody's gonna go to hell if this plane crashes you're all eating fucking meat and like you know the stewardesses were like sir you have to sit down like it was it was crazy and this, you know, this is prior to 9-11. I didn't even have to show any ID. You know, the funny thing was through all of that two years of addiction, I stayed with the diet. I think that's what I would wake up after like four days of binging, not sleeping and be like, hey, let's get some wheatgrass juice. Like, <laughs> And motherfuckers would be like, wheatgrass juice, you need a fucking straitjacket, dude. Like, you know, but, uh, you know. And then when I got back to New York, I told her, I said, you're walking off the plane ahead of me. It was completely like, that's the whole shit. The way all this shit went down, it's like just fucking out of a movie, man. And and I said, listen, the feds are going to be there. When we get there, you're walking off this plane ahead of me to give me a minute to get away. I said, I'm going to prison. You're going to a fucking drug rehab. You know, and it was like, that's all you ever wanted me for anyway, my money and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, yeah, whatever. So she, I took all the cash that the guy gave us and the cocaine in the overhead, put on a baseball hat, sunglasses. She walks out. She comes off the bridge that between the plane and the fucking terminal. As soon as she gets into it, it was raining that night and all these fucking dudes with walkie talkies and trench coats fucking swarm on her. And you hear, we got her, we got her, where is he, where is he? Like, you know, whatever the fuck. And I had merged in with this family and went down the escalator with them. And they're like, who the fuck are you? Like, you know, with these kids and like right in the middle of this big family group. And I would have got popped except for my drug addict mentality, which knew that there was another ounce in a checked in bag and I wasn't letting that shit go. That's the only reason I, because they ran outside. Never in a million years did they think this fucking Mama Luke is standing there near the carousel, like, <laughs> waiting to get his bag. And I did. And then I went out and got in a cab. I, I, you know, I had this dude get me the bag, actually. 
And the thing was, I said, listen, if you get away, whatever, and meet me at the Alcatraz, that was the bar. I'm going to be at the Alcatraz. Call me. Let me know what's happening. So I get to the Alcatraz and uh, the bartender, Betsy, goes, John, you got a phone call. And I was like, I was like, what's up, Kate? He's like, this isn't Kate. This is her father. And I'm like, what? And he goes, you're good. You're good, John. Like, and he said my real name. He's like, we had detectives, FBI, police looking for you guys all over L.A. He's like, here's the deal. You stay away from my daughter and all this goes away. If not, you're going to prison. And I'm like, but I love her, man. (laughs) (laughs) Hangs up the phone on me. She went to ACI, which is a rehab on 57th Street. I went to this crack building that I knew everybody smoked coke and was freebasing and, you know, just craziness. And these dudes robbed me. They snuck up behind me and hit me with a fucking two by four. And they took everything, my coke, money, everything. And uh, I was sitting in Tompkins Square Park up the street in the pouring rain and just crying. Like I had nothing. I had nobody, I had no friends. I robbed everybody. I fucking had dealers looking to kill me. I had no money. I had no nothing. I lost my girl. I lost everything. And I just went to the Sunday feast, the Hare Krishna Sunday feast. And I was still high. And I got in the temple room and deities were there, you know, the the statue, the deities, and, and they were chanting. And I just... Like the, some of the devotees, especially one that knew me, they had, they were hearing all the stories of what I was doing because some of those people were involved in the hardcore music punk rock scene too. So the rumors got all over the place. Even, you know, the stories got back to the devotees and the one knew me and um, I just stood there in, in the temple room and I just, I lost my shit. I just started bawling. And he came up to me and walked me out of the temple. And I I said, if you don't let me stay here, I'm going to die. And then he let me stay. He's like, you got to get a job. And you got to come to the morning program. And you got to meditate. You got to beat this drug addiction. And that's that's what I did. I got this, you know, I got this like crazy job on Wall Street as a cold caller. I had no suit. I'm, I'm working in this place. My friend got me the job, this dude Contra, and they all had fucking $3,000 Armani suits. It's like, you got to wear a suit. You got to wear shoes. I had no suit. So I borrowed a fucking wedding tuxedo from this devotee, and it was too big for me, so I had to put masking tape to alter it. I had no shoes. I borrowed like a size 13 and stuffed newspaper in the front. And I walk in there and the whole fucking, it was like a a boiler room kind of thing, Russian mob guys. And they just started all cracking the fuck up. And then I couldn't do the job. I just, I didn't have the confidence calling these people, asking for money, the rejection after rejection after it. Fuck you. You ever call her again, you motherfucker (laughs) type shit. You know, like the leads that they were giving me were the worst leads. So when I was calling, everybody was telling me off. They've been burned before and then i just left and i ran into a friend of mine chris flash who ran flash messenger service who i worked for before and i said hey man i need a job and he hired me 
And then that's how I slowly climbed out of the addiction. I worked for him. I biked seven hours a day. And then I went to the park at night and did the pack ride at night for uh, four laps. And I just climbed my fucking way out of that shit. And then I started doing some martial arts studying and, uh, and just, you know, eating clean and working out and doing my push-ups and cycling and then, and then slowly just climbed out of it, man. I love got that. Back, so got awesome. back into the music, all of that. Yeah, and now I love it. I love the book. I haven't actually read it yet, but all the things I've heard, the book Meat is for Pussies and how yeah. you're really promoting on a, a really hardcore level the plant-based and vegan lifestyle and all the content on your Instagram is just so awesome. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I mean, you know, I just, I don't try to like be preachy and all that shit. I just relate my experiences and and, and what the plant-based diet and especially the, you know, the sobriety and, and it's, it's, I, you know, my story is there to, it inspires a lot of people that are dealing with similar problems. And, you know, that's the whole hope is like, yo, I'm no different than you. I did it. If you really apply yourself, you can do any of this, whether it's sobriety doing an iron man music whatever just you know just go for it man totally and the music um we didn't even really get to talk about how punk was interweaved through this entire story but i heard you saying in your book uh the pma effect how the music was just the thing that kept you going no matter what like even when you're in jail even whenever you're like in your darkest moments the music is what kept you going yeah i mean you know the earliest memories I have of that is, you know, we were running from my father, like he was fucking breaking, beat the shit out of my mother and take all the money. Cause he had, he was ordered by the court to pay child support. So she would cash, he'd give her the check. She'd cash it. He'd break in, beat the shit out of her, take any money she had to feed us. And the thing was, she would put on 45s in the kitchen or the living room and we would dance around. And, and it was like, I would just forget all of the pain of whatever the fuck I was going through, the hunger or whatever. And then it was the same thing, you know, in the foster home, I had this little AM radio with an earphone and like the the worst shit you could possibly think of was happening to us. But that was my escape. It was the music. It was like I would go under my blanket and just put that fucking headphone in and, and the shit, the music just carried me away to like, and, and and then, you know, and then getting into punk rock, you know, it was and then being able to actually play music, it, it, you know, the worst times I think in my life was when later as as an adult, when I got into trouble was when the music wasn't there. It's always been part of my uh, journey and always even locked up, you know, it was the same thing you had, uh, you know. Everybody stays to themselves. Like you had the rockers, which were the white dudes, and then you had the brothers, and like you know, every and the Spanish dudes with their music, and like, and uh, although I really liked black music, you know, you you couldn't, you know, be like I'm gonna go hang out with the brothers because it don't work like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I liked rock music too. I loved all kinds of music, you know. Yeah. So. Yeah, it was just music's definitely intertwined in the entire journey of uh, even to this day. I'm still out there playing and uh, touring and, and uh, you know, I don't go on six-month tours, but it's an outlet, you know. I just did another record 
with this band Blood Clot, and then last year the guitar player relapsed and died of a heroin overdose. So that kind of, it's always something. You know, the first guitar player I ever played with, first band, HR from the Bad Brains hooked me up with this guy, Bob. And uh, he started dating a, bi a biker's ex-girl. That She broke up with the biker and the bikers murdered him. So that's, you know, craziness. But, uh, you know, New York was a much different time. But I'm a kid from the fucking streets and lockups and drug addiction and all the other shit. And it's like, how the fuck did I overcome all of that to be going on tour all over the world and doing all the other stuff? And I'm like, it's music. I had a dream, even as a kid, of playing music. I didn't even know what it was to tour, but I used to fantasize about going in van, a van and traveling with my brothers and, like, the whole shit. You know, in the foster home, we, we, we would, we'd have to, like, fantasize about the food and just everything. You need something to take you away from... I think that's why I got into storytelling and, and all the rest of the stuff, because it was an escape, you know, and you need that. Like, you know, you have these you have these people, uh, you know, they, this guy was so sick that I told the teachers at school that I was being beaten and all this shit. And uh, he took me to an insane asylum called Pilgrim State Mental Institution and smashed my face against the fence. And like all the patients were out there and they were like grabbing my face and yelling and like, and I'm a kid. And he's like, if you say anything again, we're gonna put you in here and nobody's ever gonna know where you are. And like, you know, just like, these people were fucking demented. And how do you escape that? How do you, how do you deal with that? Your PMA book really gives people those tools. Like, it's it's so awesome. Well, thank you. I mean, it's it, like I said, you know, a lot of that, I'm just, the, you know, there's some personal experiences that I put in there, but a lot of that is stuff that people taught me that I implemented in my life to get through shit. So it's a lot of life lessons in there, you know, and I think that's why it resonates with a lot of people too, you know. Yeah. So where can people find you? Like you go on tour, you, are you still doing the walking tours in New York? Yeah, I got Yeah. I do walking tours when I'm, when I'm in town and it's the nice time of the year, like the spring and, uh, into, into early fall and stuff like that. Maybe I, I stopped doing them in like September and it just depends on my schedule too. Like I'm on tour most of July. We're out Chromags and, uh, kill switch, Oh, actually, Chromag's JM, we got to call it now because fucking some bullshit, but uh, whatever. Everybody knows who's in the band, so we're touring with uh, Clutch and Killswitch Engage, and then uh, that ends in uh, – we have a few dates in Europe the beginning of July, and then we go out with them for like, I don't know, 17 shows, 16 shows, and then I'm home all through August, September, October, and yeah, so I do – you know, I'm pretty easy to track down on social media and, you know, and uh, I'm working on a new book now as we speak and, and a movie and, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff. So that's awesome. Busy guy. 
Very busy. I stay busy, man. You know what they say, and I don't mind. It's the devil's workshop, man. I'm up at 5 in the morning. I start writing. Then, like, you know, me and my girl take care of the dog. I go train or she goes trains. And, you know, we, we, ha we have busy lives, man, you know. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and I'll link for everybody interested. I'll put all of your social media and, and links uh, to all your books and yeah. You're, you're uh, very, very nice. And there's even like a link if anybody wants any of that philosophy literature, you can, you can uh, actually get it for free. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll uh, include the link for that. The books are uh, the Vedic teachings of India where all the yoga sutras come from is is out of the Vedas, the Rig Veda, then the uh, Upanishads, and all of that. Bhagavad Gita, Srimad Bhagavatam. So you can read all of those uh, for free, actually. Awesome. Yeah, I yeah. actually took an undergrad, like I took a world religions course just for fun, and then I loved the Eastern religions so much. I took another semester just so I could learn more about all of those religions and yeah. the, the texts. Yeah, I loved it. It was so cool. Yeah, that, like uh, all of Prabhupada's books are available to read for free. It's uh, the Bhaktivedanta Vedic Library dot org, and um, you know I, I tell everyone that, that like the book, the first book I got was the Science of Self Realization, and it just spoke to me so deeply because you know people say what well, you know I attribute that part of my life to. The only thing that really got me to continue to, to fight and the Bhagavad Gita was spoken on a battlefield. So how do we run from a fight? You don't, you know, that, that book could have been, Krishna could have spoke that to Arjuna in the woods, in the temple, in an ashram, on the beach. No, he spoke it on a battlefield and convinced Arjuna that he had to fight. That was his duty. So we have battles going on too in uh, you know everyday life and and whatever. So we we have to face them. And it, I got a lot out of uh, out of those books. So awesome. Well, we'll link that up as well. Yeah, it was so awesome to talk to you. And definitely, yeah, I hope we get to hang out sometime. Yeah, yeah. When you are you you coming with your husband down here? Yeah, we're gonna be there in October. Yeah. Um, he has a conference, but we're gonna stay extra. We actually went to New York. Um, it was a couple of years ago when we went on just like a vegan food tour. <laughs> it was after, oh, shit. Yeah, I did some seven-day race that? in Pennsylvania. And then we're like, let's just go to New York and like eat a lot of awesome food. It was so good. Oh, shit. Eat a lot of awesome food. That sounds good. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, thanks. And I hope to hear from you. And, uh, you know, thanks yeah, you for having me. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Sonia. I don't know how many times your jaw hit the floor listening to some of these stories. It's just unbelievable that these things all happened to him and that he's still alive. I love John Joseph's no BS attitude and the get shit done mentality. And I love how he always wants to be working hard and challenging himself and how he wants to be of service to others. That's something that is a deep core value to me as well. I wanna always be able to help other people and mentor other people as much as possible. And I just think it's really awesome that he's doing that stuff. If you like the show, make sure to take a screenshot and tag both myself and John Joseph Cromag on Instagram and share the show with your friends. I also would really appreciate it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts. 
that really helps the show be more searchable for people. So more people like you who are enjoying the show can find these amazing guests and find more inspiration and information to help them in their daily lives. I hope you guys have an awesome day. Wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you back here next week.